Live from London, I'm Max Foster in for Julia Chatterley. This is First Move and here's uh, what you need to know. Completely conquered, the Taliban claimed victory in Afghanistan's last holdout province. Uncertain economy, the US ends key COVID support days after disappointing job numbers. And chip shortage, Volkswagen CEO says it could take months to resolve supply issues. It's Monday, let's make a move. U.S. markets are closed for today, the Labor Day holiday. Futures for Tuesday's open are modestly higher, though, after Friday's jobs report showed a much smaller increase than was expected. In Asia, Japanese stocks are amongst the biggest gainers. Uh, The Nikkei closed 1.8% higher, building on a Friday rally after the Prime Minister announced he won't seek a re-election. The Shanghai Composite gained 1.1%, whilst the Hang Seng was up 1% after Chinese tech stocks uh, jumped over there. And here in Europe, most stocks are trading higher as shares of technology companies rise in the region as well. Uh, investors will focus on the European Central Bank policy meeting, which is later this week. Uh, let's get you to the drivers, though, because we are beginning in Afghanistan, where the Taliban claim to have taken control of Panjshir province, the country's last holdout. This video shows the Taliban raising their flag in what appears to be its governor's office. But a spokesman for the National Resistance Front denied the claim. He told CNN that resistance forces are still in strategic positions across the valley. Nick Robertson is trying to make sense of all the intelligence coming in. What are you hearing? Max, it does seem to be a position where the Taliban have taken the main sort of governance centre in the main part of the Panjshir Valley, and that was clearly their sort of strategic aim. But what is less clear is how much, if you will, mopping up they have to do. Because, look, these are rugged mountains with a lot of other valleys running off the main Panjshir Valley. There's a lot of places for fighters to hide out. And this is what the National Resistance Front is saying. They're saying, look, we're not defeated here. Um, they're not admitting that they've lost this, uh, this, key, this key town. But they're saying we can, we can continue to be the resistance, continue to put up a fight against the Taliban from these sort of smaller valleys and the mountains. But I think most significantly, we've heard from their commander, Ahmed Massoud today sort of saying, look, uh, it's not our fault. We couldn't come to a negotiated solution with the Taliban. The religious scholars in Afghanistan suggested that this was the method to solve the differences. But the Taliban are not really sticking by Sharia religious laws. They're ignoring the sort of advice of these elders. Uh, And he's saying, uh, but support us. He's telling the people of the country, we've had losses. Uh, These people are martyrs for the cause. They're fighting for Afghanistan. The Taliban is only going to take the country into a dark place, a regressive place, uh, sort of set apart from the rest of the world. But probably worrying for the Taliban, his message is to other former resistance leaders across the country and outside of the country right now, a call to arms to start a resistance more broadly across the country. Now, don't expect towns to rise up against the Taliban, but this sort of message is exactly what the Taliban are fearing. They're not going to have a free hand to run the country. They'll be harried and harassed in small areas from the mountains, from the valleys, that sort of thing going forward, potentially, Max. Uh, If the Taliban are being supported by Pakistan, which is often reported, who are the resistance being supported by, if anyone? 
You know, I, I, I met recently with uh, a spokesperson uh, with the resistance, uh, and I asked him exactly that question. We had, we had a long conversation. He said that no one was supporting them right now. He recognized that it was too early in the conflict. He recognized that, uh, you know, the international community writ large does not want to see, uh, you know, another insurgency across Afghanistan. It's not their interest. The international community wants to see stability and economic success in Afghanistan. Where he was looking for support, traditionally, he said, we've had good support when it was under... When I talked before about Ahmed Massoud, Ahmed Massoud's father was the former commander there, Ahmed Shah Massoud, a venerated figure. Um, he had a lot of support from the British, from the French, and most particularly from Tajikistan, which, which back in the day underneath the Taliban, the Northern Alliance as it was then, um, had a geographical connection with to Tajikistan. But it, but it seems at the moment that the Tajiks, who would be their natural ally, are not taking up that same position, certainly not publicly at the moment. Um, I, I think very much for the time being, those fighters are pretty much on their own. Whatever weaponry, whatever money, whatever food supplies they were able to put aside for a day like this, that's what they're going to be relying on in the short term, Max. OK, uh, Nick Robson, thank you very much indeed. Now, over in the US, pandemic unemployment benefits expire nationwide today. The federal program provided an additional $300 a week on top of the state jobless benefits. About 7.5 million Americans are expected to lose the extra money. Chrissy Romans joins me now with more. Obviously, there's a shortage of jobs in the US, isn't there? But it's not necessarily easy for people to transfer from these benefits into those jobs always. Yeah, there's a big mismatch here. And, and you know, when I look at this, Max... I don't ever remember such a big benefits cliff. I mean, you've got seven and a half million people who will lose all of their unemployment benefits today and another 2.7 million who will lose that extra $300 a week that they were getting. So that's a lot of people all at the same time that suddenly their family finances have been altered. So it's kind of an uncertain path here about what happens um, next. You're right. There are 10.1 million jobs open in the United States right now. So you would say, well, just transfer those people into those open jobs. It just isn't working like that. There's the Delta variant, which is concerning a lot of people about going into frontline jobs in, in, um, in even healthcare, but also retail and leisure and hospitality. We saw that in the jobs report. And you're just not matching people one-to-one to jobs here. There are millions of people in this country who are actually retraining, and they're saying they don't want to go back to the job they used to have. They've used this cushion, really, of these jobless benefits to do that. So all of a sudden entering a, a new phase here, one of the concerns is that suddenly, Max, you have people who were using those benefits to pay for their groceries, to buy shoes for their kids, uh, to maybe put gas in the car. That money is not going to be flowing directly into the economy. So we're not sure what the impact of that will be. A last note I will say about this is you may have heard about this bitter political debate in this country. There were, there were some governors who were casting some of these recipients of unemployment benefits as somehow freeloaders who didn't want to go back to work. They were just enjoying these benefits and, and weren't going out and doing their civic duty to get a job. You know, when we look at the states that ended these, these benefits early, you don't really see an appreciable difference in job creation. There are other things at factor here. Child care concerns, health care concerns. Uh, many people who were working a couple of part-time jobs, maybe in, in a leisure and hospitality, they may have someone at home that they need to take care of now because of how COVID has sort of changed the landscape. So we just don't know what's going to happen next. And I think that is a really interesting moment in the COVID economic experiment in this country. It's very difficult to see how the states could afford to 
you know, bring these benefits back, presumably. Well, yeah, and this was federal money, you know. So in some states, uh, some of these Republican governors, they said, you know, we don't want any more of your money. We're going to stop paying these out. We want all we want these people to get back to work. We don't want them sitting on the government dole. And people did not rush back to work. Again, there are other reasons there. Um, so this was all this ex- just unbelievable COVID relief money that at the beginning of the crisis for 18 months was meant to keep people from starving, quite frankly. You know, these people who were thrown out of a job in a matter of days at the beginning of COVID. Now we're entering this new phase where those benefits are winding down. And um, we'll, we'll see, even just as the variant, the Delta variant is taking hold here, too. So the timing, we just don't have a roadmap for what's going to happen next, Max. OK, Christine, we'll be watching. Thank you very much indeed nice for your you. insight on that. And you. Uh, these are the stories making headlines around the world. Guinea's military says the Constitution has been dissolved and the president has been arrested in an apparent coup. President Alpha Conde's location is unclear after Sunday's events, but officers say he's unharmed. Uh, the military in the West African nation also declared a curfew and summoned government ministers for a meeting. David McKenzie covering this from Johannesburg. Uh, take us through what you know then, because the, the information is pretty patchy at this point. Well, it is. But what we do know is that it uh, appears that Conde is out of power. Alpha Conde, the 83-year-old leader, Max, who had already uh, tested the patience of Guineans when he uh, extended his term limits and and then won a very controversial election last year. But I don't think people anticipated necessarily that those protests uh, would then at this point, result in what appears to be a coup that the leader of the special forces uh, has, in fact, taken over at this point. Whether they can sustain that remains to be seen. Uh, Russia, the latest nation that is uh, condemning this military coup, uh, as well as all the regional bodies, African Union and the U.S. State Department, as you would expect. But as you say, today there have been meetings where the Former government officials and parliamentarians were invited, and I use that term loosely, uh, to meetings with the coup leaders uh, in terms of negotiating, I guess, the terms of their exit from power. Uh, There were, as you say, there was a curfew put in place, uh, flights and land borders were closed. Uh, Subsequently, a spokesperson has gotten on state TV and says that those flights uh, and borders have now reopened. Uh, still a a very tenuous situation, uh, but calm today in Conakry, the capital. Okay, David, thank you. Uh, Mexican authorities have blocked the passage of a new migrant caravan heading for the U.S. The crackdown came just a day after the group left southern Mexico. As soon as Rafael Romo reports, some families with young children were amongst those caught up in the chaos. There's been tensions between immigrants and Mexican immigration authorities for weeks. This latest caravan was coming from Tapachula, a city across the Guatemalan border, and was traveling through the state of Chiapas when they were stopped. Let me first show you what happened during an operation by the Mexican National Guard and the Migration Institute with the goal of stopping the immigrants. This was the chaotic situation that unfolded in the city of Huixla, Chiapas State, Sunday morning where the migrants had spent the night. The Mexican National Guard, in full riot gear, tried to stop the immigrants. Some of them were traveling in family units with small children. There were several tense moments, including one when authorities tried to stop a mother with her child in her arms. There was a similar incident moments later when a father claimed authorities were trying to separate him from his young daughter. Let's take a look. 
Let me translate what he said. Leave me alone, he said repeatedly. I'm not leaving without my daughter. He later told the members of the National Guard, your parents too have a heart. CNN tried to reach both the National Guard and the National Migration Institute for comment, but there was no answer. There were no public statements either. Last week, the Mexican Migration Institute issued a statement saying that it was not going to allow any type of abuse against immigrants or journalists covering the story. Mexican President Andrés Manuel López Obrador said last Thursday that his country is working to hold back the migratory flow as much as it can and at the same time is in communication with the U.S. government to come up with solutions to address this challenge. This latest group of about 500 immigrants was composed of people from Haiti, Venezuela and Central America. Rafael Romo, CNN, Mexico City. The Tokyo Paralympics wrapped up Sunday with a colorful celebration, including singing, dancing and the parade of nations. Uh, the stadium was nearly empty due to the pandemic. Uh, Japan had some success containing the coronavirus during the Paralympics, but the Delta variant is still driving new infections there. Now, still to come on First Move, BMW's recyclable car, the CEO of BMW Group, on the vision for a green future and an exclusive first look at life under the Taliban in Afghanistan. In the dying days of the Trump administration, calls grew for a financial decoupling between the US and China. But during the pandemic, shortages of masks and other protective equipment showed just how reliant the US was on the Asian powerhouse. CNN's Claire Sebastian takes a look at why. So there are four different layers to our respirator. These N95 respirators are designed for pandemic survival, filtering 95% of airborne particles. Whether the business that makes them can survive the pandemic is not guaranteed. The labor costs are associated with making an N95 respirator is so different from China to the United States. We have hourly wages, we pay overtime, we pay double time on weekends. Right now, with the Delta variant fueling sales, this New Jersey factory is investing to try to bring down those costs. This is a brand new piece of machinery worth over a million dollars. It's not yet operational, but in a couple of weeks, it should be able to churn out up to 50,000 N95 masks every day. The last 18 months since Brian Wolin and his brother-in-law decided to turn this luxury retail display business into a medical-grade mask factory have been a crash course in market uncertainty. It's been a tremendous roller coaster. So um, when we first started, we didn't know how we'd be able to handle the demand. And then once the unmasking policy came out back in May, the, it really the demand dropped off significantly. Pre-pandemic, the U.S. imported most of its supply of personal protective equipment. China accounting for almost half of those imports, close to three quarters when it comes to masks and respirators. China is, for most parts of PPE, the largest exporter. And what that meant in early 2020 is when they were hit with the pandemic first, they stopped exporting. And not only did they stop exporting, um, they actually started importing from the rest of the world. That sparked critical shortages, leaving healthcare workers exposed. We shouldn't have to rely on a foreign country, especially one that doesn't share our interests or our values, in order to protect and provide our people during a national emergency. Data shows in 2020 the U.S. continued to rely on China for PPE. Imports more than tripled compared to 2019. 
Tim Manning, the White House's national COVID-19 supply coordinator, told us PPE imports are down quite a bit this year, and there is now enough manufacturing capacity in the U.S. to meet domestic demand. And yet, cheaper imports are still coming. A box of 20 of Protective Health Gear's U.S.-made N95 masks will cost you $74 on Amazon. The same quantity from China's BYD costs less than half that. Some smaller mask manufacturers tell us they also believe some Chinese manufacturers are selling certain products below cost in the U.S. to undercut U.S. producers. CNN has not independently verified this claim. Hi, how are you? Very nice. Brian Wolin is clear. He doesn't want handouts. He just wants the government to buy his product. We spoke to the government time in and time out and and tried everything that we could to get a contract. And it just hasn't happened as of this moment. How big should this industry be in normal times um, in order to be able to be easily scaled up during a pandemic? That's, you know, that's the kind of questions that the, the federal government now has to grapple with. At a time of deteriorating relations with China and still critical need for these products, questions that are both urgent and fraught with risk. Sebastian, CNN, in Patterson, New Jersey. Here in Europe, uh, BMW is flexing its uh, electric muscles at the uh, auto show in Munich. Uh, Moving away from the combustion engine was something the German giant shouted about from the rooftops of its headquarters with a spectacular light display. Uh, at the IAA Mobility Show, the company is embracing an electric future and fully recyclable cars like this one. It's called the iVision Circular. We might be driving around in something like this in 20 years' time. Imagine. Oliver Zipsy is the CEO of the BMW Group. He joins me uh, from the event. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, talk through the model behind me, uh, behind you, if you can, because as you, as we just said, it's fully recyclable, but it's also made from reusable materials. How have you managed to do that? What have you left out? Well, good morning from Munich, uh, from the IAA Mobility. What we want to showcase here that sustainable mobility is much more than electric drive trains. What we showcase here is our BMW iVision Circular to showcase that the circular economy is at the forefront of international and industrial development at BMW. And we want to show that for economical and also for ecological reasons, this is the next big thing to come. And that's why we have this vision car here, which which will determine also our new architecture, um, uh, which will start in 2025. You can operate a lot of the interior, I gather, by hand movements and Rather than having a screen, the elements are projected on the windscreen, is that correct? Well, what we do here, we, we are going into a direction, which we also already show in our IX, that technology must not be felt by the driver itself. He must uh, feel the high-tech of the car, but of course it must be in a form of shy uh, tech to, to, to the customer. And, and this car, it doesn't have a display anymore. All the information is over the windscreen, and this is the next vision for BMW. Some people suggesting that's distracting, but obviously you've looked into that and considered all the safety implications. 
Can you repeat that question? I didn't um, get so, your question. Sorry. Well, ha- having the you know um, various elements of the um, car displayed on the windscreen could be seen as distracting, but why is that not the case? No, we don't think the way. You know, you know, distraction of drivers um, is one of the um, incidents for. Um, um, accidents in the car. So we are working at Beamglow very hard to reduce distraction to the maximum uh, possible um, uh, thing. We already have in our cars the head-up display today and that's the next development standard of, uh, of head-up displays. And we want to make cars a lot safer than they are today. You haven't, unlike some of your competitors, given a transition date away from combustion engines. Uh, when do you plan to deliver a date around that? Because it's obviously inevitable at some point. Well, at this point in time, in 2021, I think electromobility is uh, on the mainstream. We will offer the i4 and the iX uh, this year, which comes to the market in the United States early next year. And I think from the very first customer demands, they will be a great hit. And until 2023, we will have 12 battery-only vehicles on the market. And the next step is in, in, in 2025, we will cover more than 90% of all segments will be uh, covered with uh, BEV-only vehicles. And uh, in 2030, more than 50%, we think, um, of our product portfolio will be fully electric in the marketplace. And uh, on top of that, Mini will be full electric from 2030 onwards. I think electromobility we've prepared for a long time, beginning with the i3, and now is the next big step uh, with the next cars coming to the market. And we are confident that the electromobility and BMW will be a perfect match. Are you confident the infrastructure will be in place, though, for your cars and your drivers? I know the EU planning to get rid of fossil fuel cars from 2035, but is the progression there that you'd like to see in the infrastructure taking place? Will nations be ready for these cars, even if you have them ready? You know, let's take it step by step. Uh, the, next, uh, the next big step is 2025. We are fully prepared for the ramp up of uh, electromobility, also to reduce the CO2 footprint in Europe in the United States, but also in China. And then the next step after, after 2030, that is uh, a topic of, of, uh, of political debate. Let's wait for that process because a lot of factors have to be drawn in. From the technology side, we are ready for this. Uh, whether the customers, the infrastructure is ready for this. And I think the next big thing we really have to tackle together in all regions of the world is enough charging infrastructure to ramp up um, electromobility to reduce further CO2 emissions. That's the next big step. Uh, the more immediate challenge you've got as well is this shortage of semiconductors, which all of your competitors are dealing with as well. I can't imagine how many chips go into the vehicle behind you, but how are you ensuring against this shortage as you uh, move through the years ahead? Well, well what, what we saw for the first six months of this year, that we could counterbalance the effects on our customer quite good. The second half of this year, we will see more effects. Also, BMW will, lease, will lose some vehicles, but we are working very hard to reduce the effects on our growing market segments. Um, but we foresee 
that the second half of the year will be more difficult. If you ask me how long this chip shorted uh, period will, will, will stay on, I consider it will be the next uh, six to 12 months. And after that, we, we, we should be over. Okay, good stuff. Oliver Zipsy, uh, appreciate your time. CEO of BMW. Now, still to come, an exclusive look at life under Taliban rule in Afghanistan's provinces. Welcome back to First Move. The Taliban has claimed victory over the last holdout region in Afghanistan. It says it's, quote, completely conquered Panjshir province after two weeks of fierce fighting. However, a spokesman for the resistance disputes the claim. CNN has an exclusive first look at life under the Taliban outside Kabul. Inside the new Afghanistan, in rural Paktika province, far from Kabul, the Taliban's provincial governor has called a meeting. No women to be seen. Local village elders and tribal chiefs listen. A young boy takes a selfie. Much has changed since the Taliban were last in charge. Smartphones and social media. But poverty, still the country's biggest problem. We have many expectations and we are praying the Taliban will deliver. The week after Kabul fell, a local journalist took a road trip for us to see what was happening outside the capital. <laughs> Taliban guides showed him the way. At the border, changes already underway. Part charm offensive, giving traders what they want, longer opening hours at the border, and part crackdown, keeping men and women apart. Let me tell you, before we had one single line for both men and women, now we have two. They are kept apart. Pakistani officials easing into the new relationship, backing the segregation. On this journey, two things become clear. Afghanistan's near financial collapse and the hard switch to religious rule. Spotting a crowd, the team stop. It's a provincial courthouse. Inside, local leaders careful to praise the new boss. We used to have to go a long way to get to a Taliban court, he says. Now we have one right here. The new judge in town, quite literally, laying down the Taliban law. Their interpretation of Islamic law. We asked the previous judges how they used to work. They said they were following the law of the land, not the Sharia. In Islamic Emirate, all court proceedings are according to the Sharia law. Under Taliban rule in the 1990s, the Taliban's Sharia law led to public amputations for thieves, stoning of adulterers, even hanging. But in the local market, Sharia law is not the big concern. It's making a living. Business is very bad. We don't know who is in charge. Only low-ranked people are here. We don't know if we can trust them. They are not telling us anything, and the situation has not improved. Prices are going up. In the barber's shop, business is down. It's not only me, he says, but business is bad in the market. It's not as good as before. They're not alone. The local pharmacist is also struggling. 
stocks already depleted under the last government. The clinic's maternity nurse, also worried about finances, says the previous government didn't pay her for the past four months and she can't afford to go home. Closer to Kabul, another doctor more problems. Day and night, he says, we get 25 to 30 patients and we have just one doctor and one nurse for them all. Outside the hospital, the Taliban claim an alternate reality. Before you didn't know whether the doctor was coming or not, but now they are there for you all the time. On this trip, the Taliban's prioritizing of Sharia law and bits of charm offensive seemingly missing Afghans' most important needs, a secure livelihood. Nick Robertson, CNN, Islamabad, Pakistan. Fundraising company Pledge has been heavily involved in campaigns to support Afghans. A fundraiser called Afghan Airlift raised $2.5 million to get more than 1,000 people out of Kabul. Pledge can raise money fast because it allows donations from a range of platforms, including Shopify, Zoom and your mobile phone. Joining me now is James Citroen, he's founder and CEO of Pledge. Thanks for joining us. Is your feeling that people are interested in donating as much as they were before, but they obviously need to be easy for them to do so? It's a great question. Well, thank you so much for having me today, Max. You know, a year ago, a year and a half ago, when we began the pandemic, Literally, the reports were one out of non one out of three nonprofits may go out of business because of COVID. And literally, what we found is that people more than ever want to support the causes that matter to them, but it has to be super easy. So recently, we launched the first donate button on Zoom, and you know, Zoom, but three hundred million people use it a day, and obviously, Shopify and a lot of these big platforms have become so much more critical to how we connect. And you need to grab them in the moment, presumably, when there's a key moment that they're seeing unfold on TV, they're affected by that. You need to grab them in that moment to make them respond. It's kind of a sign of the times, really, isn't it? We're all living in the moment much more when it comes to media. No question, right? So we launched the first partnership with Apple Pay. So literally with with your thumb now, in seconds, you can donate. So you're watching the story on CNN, you're watching the Afghanistan you know, crisis unfold. We actually worked with three organizers. These are three individuals in the U.S. who literally had deep ties to Afghanistan, but they wanted to help. And this is, you know, the Thursday right at the beginning of the fall of Afghanistan. They used Pledge and in in 48 hours raised over a million half dollars to charter the first flight out. And, you know, the impact of, of what they've done is truly profound. And I think it's not just about speed but it's really about trust. So a lot of fundraising platforms out there work very differently from Pledge. So we actually partner with, we have 2.2 million nonprofits around the world. So you can fundraise now for any nonprofit in hundreds of countries around the world and ensure your funds actually go to the source of what, of what you intend to do. And then you actually get feedback. So you know the million and a half dollars that was raised in the first 72 hours is now over two and a half million dollars. And for every donor, you actually know that 1,380 people have been safely evacuated out of Kabul and, and Afghan, Afghanistan. Uh, the challenge often with platforms like your own is that people are slightly suspicious about where you're making money. So uh, be transparent with us about how you make money or how you use the information and make money from that. Where does your funding come from? 
Transparency is absolutely key. You're you're exactly right, Max. And so different from a lot of other folks out there, we said, let's create a business model that is 100% transparent, that really relies on the generosity of donors. So instead of taking a percentage of the donation, and, and let me be very clear, 100% of the donations that go to pledge, that go, that go to our nonprofits, 100% of your money, when you use our platform, actually goes to the nonprofit. The only thing that comes out of your donation is just the credit card processing fees. And if you want to leave a tip to pledge, you can. The power of this is now as a donor, you know your money's actually going to the nonprofit that you intended to. And if you feel like our platform is doing great things and helping you, you leave a little tip for us. And by the way, this, this is working great. And it also does two things. One, it ensures the donor knows where their money goes, but also makes our platform so accessible. So small nonprofits everywhere in the world can use the Pledge technology platform without having to, to take money out of their mission to pay for our software. But presumably you're gathering pretty good data as well. Uh, and there's value in that. Yeah, there, there's no question. There's there's a ton of value in the, in the data. But what that data does is it helps nonprofits be more successful, and it actually helps our corporate partners. And let me explain that for a minute. Today, if you're running a company, you have to do good, right? Your your employees, your customers expect you to stand for more than just creating a great product. And by embedding pledge into your into your company's ethos and into your technology, like we did with Zoom, like we done with Shopify, Evite, so many other brands, Discovery, what you're doing is you're helping your customers, employees actually do good and, and serve a higher purpose by tying themselves to the brands, but you're also creating attachment to that brand as well. Okay. Uh, James Citron, founder and uh, CEO of Pledge, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. Thank you so now. much. Still ahead, uh, the end of the summer, but is it also the start of new problems for the travel industry? There's so much new uncertainty around COVID. We speak to the CEO of the European Tourism Association. For some of us here in the UK, it almost feels like it never happened. The summer is now coming to an end in the Northern Hemisphere. It marked unofficially by the Labour Day in the US today. Uh, this year is again a difficult time for the travel industry. The EU has dropped the US from its safe list, meaning member states are advised to reconsider allowing entry to non-essential US travellers. Tom Jenkins is the CEO of the European Tourism Association. Thanks for joining us. I mean, how affected is the industry by the transatlantic issues that we've obviously reported out about a lot on this network? Well, not dramatically. Um, uh, there has been a reaction in the Netherlands where they've uh, effectively put the United States on a red list, uh, and they did so with one day's notice last week. But in general, um, the countries of the European Union, indeed most of the countries, nearly all of the countries of Europe, uh, are still welcoming American visitors uh, who have been double vaccinated. Um, uh, there is no quarantine outside of uh, the Netherlands, my understanding is, there's no quarantine requirement for a U.S. citizen coming to Europe. So they can still come and visit. Um, looking back on the summer, obviously the data is pretty raw and new, but does it look like a good summer for the Northern Hemisphere from your point of view? No. <laughs> I can't get away from the fact that it's been, um, uh, especially my members which uh, specialise uh, in selling Europe as a destination throughout the world, it's been an appalling year. Um, 
long-haul tourism has been down about 95%. Um, and there was some hope that we can rescue uh, the balance of the year from September through December this year, but that um, it, you, know, you can still come as an American citizen to Europe, uh, but I, I won't pretend that it's easy. You still have to have um, PCR tests and various other forms of proof uh, before arriving in the country. So travel is not easy, um, and it's not as easy as it used to be. So um, we're, we're, we're struggling at the moment, I'll be perfectly frank. I'll let you carry on, sorry, I'll be quiet. Sorry, I so said the flip side to that is that if you can make it to Europe, um, Europe is uh, not overcrowded at the moment. So there are plenty of very enticing offers there. And in the experience of the main honeypot centres of Europe, Venice, Florence, Rome, uh, London, Amsterdam, Paris, well, not Amsterdam at the moment, but Paris, um, these places are not full as they would be now. And so it's a unique experience for those who wish to come. Presumably, is the advice to uh, book last minute? Because it's pretty stressful, isn't it, when you book well ahead of time and you just see your destination coming in and out of red lists, for example, or amber lists, you're not quite sure what you're going to have to do or whether you're actually going to be able to go there. What's the advice for people booking, uh, even, you know, looking ahead towards the, the December time holidays? I think in broad terms, uh, there are very few operators offering um, uh, packages which are non-refundable. So I would say that if you see something you want to do, book it, because there's certainly going to be terms and conditions which enable you, or there ought to be terms and conditions, which enable you to change your mind if you're forced to do so. Uh, last minute's fine if you're that kind of person, but um, if you see something you want, I'd go for that. And how are the smaller organisations um, making up part of your organisation coping with this, the smaller hotel chains, the, you know, the smaller travel companies? Uh, they haven't got the type of insurance the larger organisations have. Are they still just treading water to seeing if they, see if they can get through this? I think a lot of them, in, frankly, are in deep hibernation waiting, waiting for a new dawn to occur. And I'm sure a new dawn will occur. I mean, uh, confidence and uh, business always does come back in this industry. It's just a question of when. Uh, we've been waiting now for 24 months almost, for, for, well, certainly for 18 months for things to improve. I think they are slowly starting to improve. I, I think the recovery that we're seeing now is actually very tentative. A lot of people thought there would be a, a flood of business coming back in. This has not occurred. But I think the people there are people coming, and I think people are booking as well for next year. So uh, things are not as black as they may have seen two or three months ago. Good news. Tom Jenkins, thank you very much indeed for bringing us that. Now, after the break, we return to that major auto show in Germany and a glimpse into the future of Volkswagen this time. The CEO's take on that and his rivalry with Tesla. It's a must-see. As you've been hearing, electric vehicles and tech are taking centre stage at the IAA Mobility Show in Germany, one of the first big events for car makers since the pandemic began. Anna Stewart, following all of this, she's just spoken to the CEO's Volkswagen who wants electric cars to make up half of the group's sales by 2030. Yes, Max. And to reach that target, they have plenty more electric vehicles in the pipeline. Take a look at this. This is what they unveiled today in Munich. It's a concept car. It's called the ID Life. It is small. It's compact. It's obviously electric. 
it has that sort of popular SUV feel, SUV feel. But Max, the most interesting or exciting part of this car is that when it goes on the market in 2025, it will be pretty cheap in comparison to other models. It's the price. Just 20,000 euros uh, when it goes on the market. That's in 2025. That's under $24,000. And that's one of the biggest drawbacks, really, other than charging infrastructure for people who do want to transition to fully electric cars. Now, that target you mentioned for 2030, they want to have 50% of their car sales fully electric by then. That sounds ambitious, but take a look at some of the rivals there. You'll see Ford and Volvo uh, want to be 100% electric in Europe, Renault 90%, Stellantis, which owns the Fiat and the Peugeot brands, 70%, although that does include hybrid. But given that Volkswagen is the leader when it comes to electric car sales in Europe, that feels pretty slow, which is what I asked the CEO about. Europe, we are already leading. Uh, in, uh, even in the US, we have been in second place uh, for the for the last month. We're not slower. But we are, you know, we don't want to pull back, for instance, from Latin America, where electric cars will probably not be the solution for climate change. No, in uh, Latin America, uh, the the natural way forward is use biofuels, no, which are CO2 neutral which is still combustion engine. That is why we don't say we will finish uh, production of, uh, uh, of uh, ICE cars uh, so soon. Let's talk about the semiconductor supply crunch, because obviously that's been a big problem for so many car makers, yourself included. Um, do you think it's going to get worse before it gets better? And do you think you'll have to reduce production or close any plants? No, it, it has gotten worse already. You know, we, we expected that we would have a relief after summer break which didn't happen because in Malaysia we had uh, really quite significant problems with COVID. Uh, some of our suppliers, the back ends of our suppliers are mostly based uh, in Malaysia. Three plants were hit hard. We think that we will overcome this situation towards the end of the month and then we should see a relief. Uh, semiconductors will be on short supply probably for several months. Volkswagen is, of course, very competitive with Tesla. You really give them a run for their money, particularly, I think, in Europe. There have been many parallels drawn as well between yourself and Elon Musk, not least given your very active social media presence, selfies with Mr. Musk, lots of stunts. Have you taken a leaf out of his playbook? No, I think, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, I, I don't see any parallels. I, I highly regard what he's doing. Now, I think he's, he's a brilliant guy and he's really, uh, he makes a difference. Now, he's changing the world with his uh, uh, ventures. Uh, I think uh, I really like that he's uh, thinking very long into the future. Now, he's thinking far and uh, he's a brilliant guy, uh, and, uh, uh, but we are quite different. No, he is uh, very focused on Tesla, on, on his story. I'm running a big traditional company, which uh, we try to prepare for the future. Uh, and uh, I think we also be quite different characters. I like him a lot, but uh, uh, I think we are quite different. Well worth following Mr. Deese on social media, Max. I don't know whether he's on TikTok, but he's certainly on Twitter. And you just never know when he's going to next sort of tease Elon Musk or do some fantastic publicity stunt. Elon Musk wasn't uh, wasn't obviously there at the show, nor was Tesla. They don't generally go to these big auto shows. And actually, lots of players were missing this year. It was quite interesting, not just who was there, but who wasn't. So missing from the show were... 
Toyota, Stellantis, which own the Fiat and the Peugeot brands, uh, Volvo, GM, Ferrari, Rolls-Royce. And also, I keep calling it a car show, but it really wasn't. This year it was called a mobility show. So it also included bikes and buses and scooters. And I feel like that says it all. The transition really away from maybe the brands themselves and much more focus on the technology and software that they're using. Max? Yeah, some pretty funky stuff there. Uh, you'll be there next year as well. I mean, you oh, I left so, yourself off the list, Anna. <laughs> I left uh, myself off the list, too, Drew. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, now, a bit of a deadly combat for you. I trained you. <laughs> so the most dangerous people in the world couldn't kill you. That is Marvel's newest hero, smashing US Labor Day weekend records at the box office. I watched it, watched it yesterday, and it really is a gripper. Shang-Chi and the legend of the Ten Rings brought in a record $71.4 million at the weekend, giving the movie industry a much-needed boost. Finally, on First Move, get ready to raise a glass. The oldest single malt scotch whisky in the world is set to go on auction, and connoisseurs better have deep wallets, because whisky maker Gordon and McPhail unveiled the 80-year-old Scotch Wednesday at a Sotheby's auction house. It comes in a jewel-like decanter, and it could sell for more than 220 thousand dollars so it's about judging the moment when the whiskey is absolutely right it's just drinking at its peak and it was deemed having studied it obviously the evolution up to now that now was the moment the strength was great the flavors are incredible it's got a beautiful balance between the contributions from the oak but still showing that original spirit character so this was the very moment there's a salesman. Uh, the precious decanter is the first of 250 that will be bottled from one cask at Glenlivet, a distillery in Scotland. That is it uh, for the show. Thank you for watching. Connect the World with Becky is up next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.